Well, today we are talking about the cross, uh, and the image of the cross is very familiar to us. We see it on buildings, and we know it's probably a church. Uh, we, we wear it as decoration you know, around our bodies. We put it around our neck as jewelry and on our fingers, and it's usually shiny and gold and silver and expensive. Uh, we, we hang crosses on walls as forms of decoration. And I think we have a cross right here on the pulpit, which looks very nice, by the way. But we can become so used to seeing crosses, decorating with crosses, uh, wearing crosses as jewelry, that we can sort of forget that these are symbols representing a cross, the cross, the original cross. And it was not a, a nice, shiny, pretty, decorative uh, object. It was actually an instrument of death. It would sort of be the equivalent today of wearing an image of an electric chair around your neck. You know, you, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't, you wouldn't take an electric chair and, and, and put it on the wall, sort of a picture of an electric chair, because it's awful. It's terrible. It's an instrument of death. And I'm, I'm not here trying to make an argument that we shouldn't wear crosses as jewelry or we shouldn't put crosses on walls as decoration. I am making the argument that we shouldn't forget what the image of the cross represents and what it pictures, and that is the original cross, which was terrible and awful in, in one sense, and in another sense, wonderful and beautiful. Uh, in some ways, it was worse than an electric chair because the cross was designed to be the kind of the most brutal form of, of capital punishment. It was intended to be a form of capital punishment that prolonged life as long as possible to make the torture that much worse, to make the humiliation that much worse. And so, and yet Paul would say about the cross in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to talk about what that means. What is the meaning of the cross? And, uh, and we're going to be encouraged to say with the apostle, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark 15. I'm going to ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 21 through 32. And this is the very inspired Word of God. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. As we consider what happened 2,000 years ago and what it means, I pray that we would appreciate it more fully, more deeply. I pray as a result, we would not boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So I just want us to consider three aspects about the cross this morning. First of all, that it happened. 
Second, that it matters. And then third, it's meaning. So let's begin by talking about the fact that the cross happened. Verse 24 says, and they crucified him. The fact that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified on a Roman cross just outside of Jerusalem around 30 A.D. is one of the most historically verified events that happened in ancient history. Let me just point out several ways we we see the historicity of the event in our text. First of all, verse 21 says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. We saw last week where Jesus was scourged, beaten. This is a Roman type of uh, punishment that could kill a person. It often did kill a person. It was, a, it was tearing away the flesh with this whip, the leather whip with bone on it. Tear away the flesh. Oftentimes organs were left exposed. Bones were left exposed. And so Jesus, after having been beaten like this, is, is literally unable to carry his cross. And so they assign someone to carry it for him. Most likely carrying the cross would have meant carrying the horizontal part of the cross. The vertical part of the cross was most likely secure. And so you'd walk with the horizontal part to the place and then they would secure it to the vertical part. But this person who carries the cross were given his name. His name is Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is modern day Libya, North Africa. He's from a hometown. He's got a family. We know his name. These are historical details that you, you don't put into to, to ancient writing unless it happened. You don't just kind of make stuff up. He, he says, you know, his name is Simon. Go talk to him. He's from North Africa. And he mentions his, his sons, Alexander and Rufus. Who are they? We don't know. But Mark's audience knew. That's the point. He's saying, look, go talk to Alexander. Go talk to Rufus. Their father was there carrying the cross. He saw it. By the way, interesting, Rufus is referred to in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Many people think it's the same person because many people think Mark is writing to the church at Rome. Paul writing to the church at Rome refers to Rufus. Here's Mark possibly writing to the church at Rome referring to Rufus. He's saying, you know him. Go ask Rufus about it. It happened. There's people who witnessed it. There are actual names of people. You don't see this in fictional writings in ancient history. Look at verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. This is a specific location. It's called Golgotha. That's, that's the Aramaic. In, in Greek, it's cranium or the skull. In Latin, it's called Calvary. Uh, we usually refer to Calvary because it's a little more poetic. I think for the sake of our hymns and our poetry, something about Calvary just has a flow to it that Golgotha doesn't quite have. And so we usually sing about Calvary. But it's all the same place, just different languages referring to the same place. It was located immediately outside the city, just outside the city gates. It was not located on a hill far away. You know, we often see it depicted in, 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 in images or movies, if, if, if you've seen it. Uh, you know, it seems like this kind of place where nothing else is and no one else is. It's sort of out in the mountains. No, it's right by the city gates. Why? It's by design. When all of these passengers and travelers came into Jerusalem for the festival, Rome wanted them to see the criminals hanging on the crosses to say, don't go the way of the criminal. So as Jesus is there on the cross, you know, tons of people are walking by, passing by, seeing this. And Rome is sending a very clear message. You can imagine this place became considered very sacred to Christians after Jesus died and was buried there. 
And so the Roman emperor Hadrian came in and hated Christians and was hostile to Christians. And so he built a, a, a temple to Jupiter there on that very location to despise the Christians. And then, of course, when Constantine became the Roman emperor, he came in and, and tore that down and erected a church there instead. And today, that, that place is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And it's interesting. There's been buildings all built on top of each other and around each other. It's really kind of a fascinating place. It doesn't feel like... It doesn't, I don't feel like I'm at the place where Jesus was crucified and buried, but the historical evidence suggests that's the place. And whether or not it is the place, the point is there is a place. There is a place in time-space history where Jesus was crucified and where Jesus was buried. Now, because we are talking about the historical reality of this event, I feel like it's necessary and important for us to point out what some people call inconsistencies among the Gospels about this event, and then I think we need to address it. Uh, we, we welcome questions. We welcome tough questions. And uh, here's a couple of tough questions or, or inconsistencies that some have pointed out that we will address and then uh, deal with. Verse, Mark 15, verse 23. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, some people think we have a contradiction here because some of the Gospels say that he did take it. He did drink it. John, for example, says he drank it. And so it raises the question, which one is it? Is Mark right and he didn't drink it? Or is John right and he did drink it? And the answer is, it's both. Initially, he rejected it, and then eventually he drank it. And I think you see in Mark verse 36 of 15 where Jesus eventually drinks it. But this was designed, the drink was designed to sort of bring about numbing so that you'd somewhat be somewhat numb to the physical pain. And Jesus rejects it initially, and I think it's because he's, he's here for this purpose, to drink the cup of God's wrath. He's not here to avoid it, he's here to embrace it, and he does fully. The Bible doesn't go into a lot of the details of the physical torture, and so therefore I don't think it's uh, appropriate for us to go into over overly go into details of the physical torture and the cause of death and all of this. But I do think the original audience would have understood what it means to be crucified. And so I think it's right for us to, to consider what, what, what exactly is involved in, in being crucified. And the answer is they would secure the, the hands or the arms to the horizontal piece, either with straps or with a, a nail. And in Jesus' case, we have reason to believe it was with nails. Uh, it's commonly believed that the feet would be nailed to the side of the cross. Uh, they have literally found ankles, human ankles from this time period with nails that went into the side of the ankle and then driven into the wood. In fact, I've seen one. I've seen a human ankle in a museum there in Jerusalem uh, with, with a nail in it. And it was from this time period. And so it's, it's believed that Jesus' feet were nailed to the sides uh, it's possible. Sometimes there would be sort of a, a uh, kind of a place to be able to push up on to catch your breath so that you could breathe. And some people think, well, maybe that's kind of a sign of a kindness or a grace to offer, offer sort of a little stool that you can press up on so you can catch your breath. But it was designed to just prolong the inevitable and to make it as brutal as it could be. So the little stool to stand on or push yourself up on to catch your breath was actually a form of just trying to prolong this awful, excruciating death. And so it is believed that most people on a cross would die from asphyxiation. So Jesus refuses the drink initially, 
most likely in order to experience the fullness of the cup of God's wrath, the fullness of this, of this punishment. In John, he eventually drinks the cup because it's over. He drinks it and he says, it is finished. That's it. And then John says he does this to fulfill Scripture as well. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Let me point out one more issue that some people have pointed to and said, wait a minute, don't we have an inconsistency here? In verse 25, it says it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, in John 19, 14, it says it was about the sixth hour before Herod handed him over to be crucified. So some people say, wait a minute. We got Mark saying the third hour. You got John saying the sixth hour. Clearly, there's a contradiction, right? Well, here's the, here's the deal. We keep up with time very precisely. We have clocks. We have watches. Uh, we, we, we take the exact time and the exact minute very seriously. And this is not necessarily the way they kept time in the ancient world. You didn't have clocks and watches. You had the sun rising and the sun setting. And when the sun came up, that's sort of like zero hour. And then three hours later, roughly, the third hour. And six hours later, the sixth hour. Right? And so if Jesus, let's just say hypothetically, was crucified at 10.32 a.m., which, by the way, what, what, what do we mean by crucified? Like when he was initially placed on the cross or when he was eventually taken down from the cross or somewhere in between? So you got that issue as well. Right? It doesn't just happen in a minute. It happens over time. So that can account for why there might be two different perspectives here. But either way, if it's 10.32 a.m. and one person rounds down and calls it the third hour and one person rounds up and calls it the sixth hour, that makes a lot of sense. Now, for us, we like our precision. Right? Interestingly, we'll just skip an hour. Last night, we just skipped 2 a.m. Right? So we don't necessarily have the way of keeping time. It's all, you know, bulletproof. And it would be silly for us to take our ways of keeping time and impress them on an ancient writer who just clearly keeps time very differently when you don't have a watch. And, and, and I would actually argue that the fact that you have one person saying it was about the third hour and one person saying it's about the sixth hour, that actually should increase our confidence in the historical reliability of these accounts. Because if they got together, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John got together and sort of said, hey, let's come up with an account, and let's get them all the same so it seems like it happened, then they're going to all be identical. They're going to all say the third hour. The fact that you have some difference in perspective actually gives us great confidence in the, the reliability of the text. But here's the point. We have very strong reason to believe there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on a cross just outside of Jerusalem roughly 2,000 years ago. All the historical evidence we have from that time says it happened. All the, we don't have any historical evidence from that time that says it didn't happen. And in fact, one other interesting point, we actually have our calendars are based on this event. The birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Right? What, what, what year are we living in right now? 2022. 2022 years since what? 2022 years in the year of our Lord, right? Since, since Jesus came and died. Our very calendars are based around this event. The, 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 all of the historical evidence points to the significance of this person and his birth and his death and his resurrection. Uh, a group of us went on a trip recently to Greece and we got to walk in the steps of Paul 
And it was, you know, wonderful to see the biblical history of the places where these churches were first planted, the very first churches. Uh, we, we also got to see a little bit of the history of Greece and the, the stories and the background of Greece and, you know, where the Greek mythologies came from. And it was kind of it was interesting. It's fascinating. There's sort of a, a Greek myth to explain everything. There's a Greek myth to explain war. There's a Greek myth to explain bad weather. There's a Greek myth to explain good and evil. And a lot of people sort of think of Christianity as being sort of like the Greek myths. There's these, these stories that were made up in order to explain things. You know, to give an account for why you should do good and the difference between good and evil. And uh, here's the problem with that. Uh, and a lot of people think that's what Christianity is. It's sort of an explanation of things. If it works for you, if you can use it, if it's helpful for you, great, go for it. If it doesn't help me, then, you know, then that's fine too. It's, it's sort of there for your benefit, for your good. If it helps you, wonderful. If it doesn't, then, you know, don't mess with it. Try something else. Here's the problem with that approach. The claim that the Bible is making, the claim that Christianity is making, is that everything is contingent on this historical event. That there's a man named Jesus who died on the cross and rose again. And in fact, the Bible actually says, if he didn't, then Christians are among all people the most to be pitied. In other words, if he didn't, you know, run as far away as you can from it. It's not like, the Bible's not saying, we're here to kind of help you get through life, and we're here to kind of help provide some answers to your questions and satisfy your curiosity. The message of the Bible is, this happened. This event happened in history. And I was actually talking to a gentleman this past week, and he was telling me how he came to Christ, and he said he was just investigating this question. Did Jesus live and die? Did he die on a cross and rise again? And he recognized, if yes, then it changes everything. And if no, then might as well, you know, leave it and go explore something else. And I said, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. 100%. The Christian faith boils down to this. Do you believe a man named Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago and rose again? And the claim of the Bible is, it happened. And this brings us now to talk about the fact that it matters. Not only did it happen, but it actually matters. And one of the ways that the gospel writers are trying to get us to see that it matters is they're trying to show us how these things are happening and they are fulfilling certain texts from the Old Testament. So there are certain texts written hundreds, thousands of years beforehand in detail that are pointing forward, predicting, prophesying certain events that happen and are fulfilled in the person and the death of Jesus. And so I want to point out some of those to you. I've included them in the sermon notes so that you don't have to frantically write them down. And they'll also be up here on the screen behind me. So I'll show you the Old Testament text, and then we will look at Mark and we'll see its fulfillment in Mark. So first of all, we have the issue of the drink. Psalm 69 verse 21 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now look at the fulfillment, Mark 15, verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Second, we have the issue of the crucifixion and the clothes. His clothes. Look at Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. It's behind me here. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Look at Mark 15, verse 24. 
and they crucified him. How'd they crucify him? By piercing his hands and his feet. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Third, the transgressors. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now look at Mark 15, verse 27. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now in the ESV, this is interesting, little side note. In the ESV, verse 28 is actually in the footnotes. And the reason why it's in the footnotes is because it's believed that it came from manuscripts that are not the oldest, not the, not the most original. It came from more recent manuscripts. But verse 28 says this, And the Scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, why might a scribe insert that in, insert verse 28 in? The answer is because it's included in Luke. In Luke's gospel, it is original. In Luke's gospel, it is, it is strongly believed to be part of the original. Luke 22, verse 37. So here's the point. If you didn't understand any of that side point, here's the main point. At the very least, Luke is telling us that Jesus being crucified among two robbers is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, which says he will be numbered with the transgressors. Now let's move on to the mocking. Once again, we're looking at Psalm 22 here. Psalm 22 is an important psalm. We've already referred to it once, and this is the psalm that Jesus will quote when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So listen to Psalm 22, verses 6-8. through eight. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now look at Mark fifteen twenty nine to 30, where we see the same thing happening to Jesus. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So we see the scripture in the Old Testament, at least four examples, there's more, we're just using four, and we see the fulfillment, fulfilled in Jesus at the cross. When I was in, I think, high school, uh, my parents threw a surprise birthday party for me. I've only had one surprise birthday party, it was enough uh, for one life. And uh, you know, I came in the house, and all of these people were hiding, and they jumped out. Surprise! And it was a surprise. It shocked me. I didn't see it coming. And, you know, it startles you at first. And you're like, what are you doing in my house? And what are you all doing here? And what is going on? And then it sort of hits you. Oh, yeah, it's my birthday. And uh, they're probably, this is probably a surprise party. And then you start to kind of, you know, unpack it all. Oh, so this is why you guys wanted me out of the house so badly earlier. And why you told me you need me to go do this and that. Like, it seemed odd, but... And oh, so this explains why there's those cars out there that I didn't really, you know, recognize and I was wondering. And, 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 you know, they kind of explain to you, oh, yeah, remember when you were doing this, we were doing that. And you start to see sort of the planning and the organizing behind the scenes. In the moment, it's just utter chaos. Like, what is going on? Why are you all here? And this is odd. And I'm startled. 
And then you can kind of step back over time and go, okay, I'm starting to see the rhyme and the reason and why and the organization, and I can appreciate it. And in a similar kind of way, when Jesus is crucified on the cross, I'm confident to his followers, it seemed like utter chaos. They're running and hiding. Right? What is going on? It seems like evil is winning. It seems like he can't be the son of God if this is happening to him. He's experiencing Roman crucifixion. And by the way, there were tons of Roman crucifixions. Like thousands of people have died by Roman crucifixion. Right? So the, the, the Roman cross is not unique per se. The cross that Jesus died on in his death is what's unique. Right? But at, in the moment, it just seems chaos. But the, but the biblical writers, the gospel writers, are, are telling us and showing us it may seem like chaos, but it's not. There is rhyme and reason and order and planning, and God has been planning this from a long time ago. Just look at these scriptures. Look at the precision. Look at the fulfillment. Look at how Jesus has been telling you this is what he's going to do. Uh, the, the, the accounts are written to show us it's not just an historical event. It has meaning. It matters. Something's happening here. God is in control. God is doing this. And so I'm going to make the assumption here this morning that you affirm and believe that a man named Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago. I I can't fathom a person not believing that. I don't know of any serious person of history, studier of history, scholar of history, who, who rejects the fact that there was a man named Jesus who died on the cross. I'm going to assume... You believe that. If not, I'm glad to talk to you, but I'm going to assume you do. But now let me ask you the next question, and it's important that we go to the next level. Do you believe, do you recognize that it matters that he died on the cross? Not just do you believe it happened in history, I hope you do and you should, but do you realize his death matters? Something was happening. God was doing something, and it means something. And it actually means something today. And and that brings us to point number three. What difference does it make? What does it mean? Why does the cross matter? And there are a number of ways we could answer this question. I'm going to just mention two. Two reasons why the cross matters. There's actually a book uh, by John Piper called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And I would recommend it to you. So if you want to read about 50 reasons, 50 meanings of the cross... Uh, check out that book. It's pretty short. And it's a good, by the way, it's a good book to be reading as we lead up to celebration of, of the resurrection. But let me just point out two. Two reasons Jesus dies, or two meanings that this has for us today. And, and the first one comes from his interaction with those who mock him. And the second comes from his interaction with the two thieves on the cross. And, and I'm going to emphasize two of the sayings of Jesus from the cross. Right? There are seven total sayings of Jesus. Three come from Luke, three come from John, one comes from Mark, and Matthew's is identical to Mark's. Right? So these two come from Luke. Luke 23, 34, here's the first one. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's consider this. Who, who, is, he, who is he referring to? Who is them? Father, forgive them. And I think the answer is those who are mocking him. Who's mocking him? First of all, the passers-by. The tons of people coming into the city who see him. We've already read about that in verses 29 through 30. But I believe this also includes the religious leadership. 
Those who initiated all of this. And those who are mocking Him even as He's dying on the cross. Look at verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked Him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. Once again, we see some great irony here. Jesus is saving others by not saving Himself. If He were to save Himself by coming down from the cross, He would save no one. He saves us by staying on the cross. So we see some interesting irony there. I believe Jesus is also praying here for the Roman soldiers. The very ones who have just beaten Him half to death. The very ones who have just secured Him to a cross. The very ones who are mocking Him. The very ones who are gambling for His clothes while He hangs on the cross in shame. And they're gambling for His clothes. Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Mark actually tells us that one of them comes to faith. Look at verse 39, Mark 15. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There was something about the way that Jesus died that caused this Roman centurion, Roman soldier, to say, this man was the Son of God. What was it? Was it the fact that Jesus was in such control? He gave up His life? Uh, I think it's also likely it's, it's the way that Jesus experienced the cross. The way He received this. The way he, he responded. The way He cared for and had compassion for the very people who were responsible for killing Him. He's praying for them while they're physically killing Him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We learn something about what the cross means by Jesus' phrase here, His statement here. Forgive them. The cross is about forgiveness. Jesus came to forgive sinners. And He came to forgive the worst kind of sinners. He came to forgive the very people who were responsible for His death. And my question for you this morning is this. Have you experienced the forgiveness that Jesus came to bring at the cross? And if you haven't, it's likely it's because you say, I'm just not sure He could forgive me. I'm not sure He wants to forgive me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how many times I've, I've, I've felt guilty and didn't do anything about it. I'm not sure He can forgive me. And I know that kind of feels and sounds humble. My sin's so great I could never be forgiven. But it's actually arrogant. Because you're saying your sin is worse than those who crucified Jesus Himself. And I'm going to venture out on a limb and say it's not. Right? Jesus came to forgive the very people who were responsible for His death. And He came to forgive you and your sin, whatever it might be. And so my encouragement to you is, go to Him and receive the forgiveness He came to bring at the cross. The cross means you can be forgiven of your sin. Secondly, the cross means you can live. In Mark 15, 27, it says, They crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And in verse 32, it says, Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The very criminal on his right and left are also mocking him in the midst of his death. And of course, one of the gospel accounts gives us a little bit fuller picture of, of, of something that transpires here. Mark doesn't tell us this, but Luke tells us one of the two says to him, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So apparently, you put the two accounts together, 
apparently one of them had a change of heart, a change of mind. Early on in the crucifixion, they're both mocking him. Somewhere along the way, one of them has a change of heart, a change of mind, and says, Jesus, have mercy on me. Remember me. Why? What happened? What caused the change? I'm guessing it's the same kind of thing as we saw with the Roman, the Roman centurion. He saw the way Jesus died. He saw how in control Jesus was, and he saw how compassionate Jesus was, even to his worst enemies. And that changed his heart. And he, he said, Jesus, remember me. Now, I want us to consider how Jesus responds to him. What does Jesus say in response? Let's first of all consider what Jesus does not say to him. Jesus doesn't say, oh, what changed? What happened? My, how the tables have turned. Right? You went from mocking me and now you're begging for mercy. Hmm, interesting. Right? I might be inclined to respond something like that. Jesus does not respond by saying, you know, I know all things and I know what you've done and I know what you're sitting here asking me to forgive you of. I know your past. I know why you're hanging there on that cross. You actually deserve to be there. Jesus doesn't respond by saying, you know, if I forgive you, what's in it for me? Like, I'm here to change lives so people impact the world for me. I want to see people come to Christ early and make a huge difference for me. So what, you know, if, if you're saved and then you die, what, what does that do for the kingdom of God, really? Jesus doesn't respond like that. Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. Now think about what all is behind that. First of all, Jesus is saying, you're going to be alive today. He's about to die. He's about to die, and Jesus says, you're going to be alive. Jesus is about to die, and his body is going to be placed in a tomb. And yet Jesus says, you're going to be with me today in paradise. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to be alive today. In some sense, Jesus is alive, though his body is in a tomb. And the man is going to be with him in paradise forever. And this is what the cross means for us. It means you can be with him forever. If you, like the man on the cross, will recognize your need, your sin, and if you will look to Jesus and trust in who he is and what he's come to do for you, Jesus will say to you, just like he said to them, you're forgiven and today you will be with me forever. Starting today, you will be with me in paradise forever. The cross happened. The cross matters. The cross has meaning. It means something. And my question for you is, have you experienced its meaning? Have you had the work of Jesus applied to you? It has to be applied to you. It's not enough for it to have happened and you to merely believe it happened. It's not enough for you to say, I believe it matters. You have to take the next step and have the work of Jesus applied to you. Have you had the work applied to you? It's simple. You simply recognize your sin, your need. You look to Jesus. You trust in who He is and what He's done for you. And you will be forgiven. And you will have confidence that you will live with Him forever in paradise. Let's pray.